disregarded uh, or ignored or somehow silenced. Uh, so that's a, that's a problem in the church. Rob? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it's a very small portion of the letter, but, but we haven't seen that in the other letters. He, this is very personal in the sense that he's writing to an individual. He's commending an individual for what he's done. He's speaking about what another individual in the church is not doing correctly, and he's commending this third individual, Demetrius, um, who may be the man who's carrying the letter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, you can think about some of the, the fiery language that Paul uses when he writes to the Galatians, and, and it's a doctrinal error, and, uh, you know, let, if even an angel preaches to you another gospel, let him be accursed. John's not calling down anathemas, but he is saying, I'm going to deal with it, uh, if, and I think the if there should be interpreted as when, um, if I come, when I come, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with it, but... Um, he's, he's not saying, get rid of Diotrephes, cast him out of the church, call down anathemas. He's, he is, uh, although it's, uh, he's dealing with the problem, it is, I think you're right, pretty laid back. Good. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Scott? Yeah, yeah, so this, uh, and it's really a command. Uh, verse 8, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Good, so a, a few new things in this letter. There are, uh, there are several approaches we could take to this letter. The, the classic approach to understanding it seems to be to break it down into these different personalities uh, of, of examining uh, Gaius and then Diotrephes and then Demetrius and the role that they're playing in the whole situation. But another important sort of key to unlock what's going on here um, is in verse 11. Uh, this is uh, the only direct command, the only imperative in the letter. So in verse 8, where it says, we ought to support people, um, if it were a command, he would say, support such people. But he's saying, here's a, a general rule. But in, uh, in verse 11, this is a command. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. The, the word imitate there is to mimic, or sometimes translated as follow. Be followers of the truth. Be those that, that latch on to good examples and eschew bad examples. And we want nothing to do with the bad. We want everything to do with the good. Uh, and so combining those two, these three personalities, and this idea of Good examples and bad examples gives us a, a way to look through the letter. There's a good example for us in Gaius, uh, who is this fellow worker. Uh, he's faithful in what he's doing and supporting those who work for the sake of the gospel. And then there's Diotrephes, who seems to be this prideful troublemaker, uh, and, uh, and Demetrius, uh, who is a man who has a good testimony from everyone. That's basically all we know about Demetrius, but it says a lot about his character, that John would say, everybody looks at him and he's got good repute. Uh, and he has a good name among others. So uh, let's, let's look at those in that order. Let's take a look at Gaius first, and then we'll, we'll take a deeper look in a Diotrephes and what's going on with that, although we've, uh, we've broached the subject already. Uh, so take a look, especially verses 3 and 5. Uh, 
Um, it says in verse 3, uh, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you're walking in the truth. And then verse 5, he says basically the same thing again. These brothers, strangers as they are, testified to your love uh, before the church. So here's the, the situation that we've already begun uh, to look at. It seems as though part of the occasion of this letter is that there were some brothers, they're unnamed, we don't know who they are, but traveling missionaries sent from wherever John's congregation was to wherever Gaius's congregation was, uh, and Gaius gave them a good reception. Uh, take a look at some of the, the language uh, that it has there. It speaks in verse 5 of um, efforts. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. So Gaius has put himself out there. Uh, he's been working to receive them. It talks in verse 6 uh, of, uh, of sending them. You will do well to send them on their journey. Uh, and then on the flip side, we have verse 10, uh, Diotrephes, uh, that he refuses to welcome the brothers. So there's, there's the opposite of what Gaius is doing. So it seems that, that uh, missionaries, traveling missionaries, have gone out from John. They've come to Gaius' church, and Gaius did a commendable thing, a faithful thing. He welcomed them. He, he helped them. He, he made effort on their behalf and now sent them, it seems, back to John where they've given a report. It says twice, they've reported of uh, your truth, and they've reported of your love. Rob? Um, perhaps, uh, it, it certainly says before your church, uh, and now whether we see that as uh, a meeting in Gaius's church or a meeting back at John's church might be uh, a different question. I, I would read that as though they, they've come back to John, and to John they've given the report, and perhaps to John's church, of there is this faithful brother Gaius, and he is over at this other congregation, probably somewhere in Ephesus. Yeah. Okay, so you think that maybe before Gaius' church? Perhaps, perhaps. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, came and testified. Yeah, so the, the, the Greek is different in, the, in verses 3 and 6, the, that idea of testifying. Uh, in 6, it's, it's the aorist tense, which would be a, basically a simple past. It, it, it's happened. Um, so it doesn't really, uh, that might not help us very much. But it, yeah, but it's, it's in the past. It's happened. And my idea would, would be that they've come back to John. And he's, it's almost like he's interrupting himself. You notice the same language. I, I rejoice when they came and testified. Uh, and the words uh, there, testified. They came and testified to your truth. Uh, and now, beloved, uh, it's a faithful thing you do uh, in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. I would imagine that it's the same situation. So they're, they're now testifying back at John's church. But it may not, it may not even make a difference. Uh, but the, the idea there, notice that what does switch, he uses the same verb. They testified of your something. Uh, they testified in verse 3 of your truth. Uh, which, if you've got the King James, it obscures it just a little bit, the truth that is in you or, or something along those lines. Um, but the language is actually exactly the same 
uh, in verse 3 and verse 6. Your love, your truth, uh, something that is, uh, that is within you. Um, and, and that's another theme that we've seen already, the way that you can't really have truth without love, and you can't really have love without truth. And when he talks about the testimony that they've given, uh, he says both of them, that, that they, they talked about your love, they talked about your truth, and we should understand those as, as one and the same, as uh, truth being expressed in love, or, or love uh, overflowing in, in true behavior or, or faithful behavior. Um, okay, so we've got these men uh, who are coming back, and, and they're talking about his love and his truth, uh, and, and what exactly is commendable in what, uh, what Gaius has done? He, he's, he's praising him. It's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts. Why is it so faithful? Why is it such a good thing that Gaius uh, should, it appears, welcome these, these brothers who have come? Because of the opposition? Yeah, so he's in a situation where it's probably not uh, the easy thing to welcome them. He's going against the grain of, of uh, Diotrephes, and, and he... He's already putting people out of the church who want to welcome these brothers, okay? And, and so it seems that Gaius is standing firm. That's commendable. Uh, what else is commendable about what he's doing? Now, compare that to 2 John that we looked at last week. And these, these dual themes, um, and, and he's writing to the elect lady in 2 John and basically saying, don't, don't spread hospitality too liberally, too easily. Um, and, of course, the, the theme of 1 John, in a sense, was test the spirits. If anybody comes to you and they don't bring the teaching that Christ has come in the flesh, don't welcome them. Um, and, and so he doesn't mention discernment, but he does say, these brothers came to you and they were strangers and you welcomed them. And we've almost got to understand or, or, or assume, read between the lines of the context of what we have in 1 John and in 2 John, um, that, that he is doing that. He, he must have been doing that um, because he's commended because he welcomes these brothers. Uh, but he didn't know them beforehand. They were strangers. But it seems that they've come and they're, they're coming from John and they must be bearing this truth that Christ has come in the flesh. And he responds appropriately as believers should. So yeah, this idea that they were strangers, so, so there's this level of discernment that's happening uh, sort of uh, behind the scenes. And uh, again, it's not explicit there, but I think in the context of First and Second John, uh, we need to understand that that's, that's what's happening. So it's commendable that he's, he's discerning why should we in, invite and welcome these brothers and not some other brothers. So that's a good thing. Yeah, because they're strangers. Anything else that's commendable about what he's doing here? Absolutely, that, that he is caring for them. Notice the language that it's using uh, in verse 5. Beloved, it's a faithful thing. Now, we might say it's a charitable thing if it was just a nice gesture. We might say that it is um, a kind thing if it were simply a nice gesture. But he's talking in terms of faithfulness, in, in terms of uh, his welcoming of these strange brothers, these men that he didn't know, uh, is part of his spiritual worship, in a sense. 
He's doing this because he loves the Lord, because he believes in Christ who has come in the flesh. And so others who come in the flesh, this is part of his, his, uh, his living in the world as a believer in Christ. It's a faithful thing, not just a kind thing, not just a, a generous thing, uh, but it's a, it's a faithful thing. And then in verse 6, he says, and you'll do well to uh, send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now, that's, that's important in the context of the letter and the confrontation of Diotrephes later um, because it seems that, uh, that Gaius is commended because he receives them in the name of Christ and he wants to send them out in the name of Christ and he wants to treat them as ambassadors for Christ, whereas Diotrephes wants nothing to do with that. <laughs> he's, uh, he's simply closing uh, his door and, and closing his heart and not welcoming these brothers uh, even though they have, it says in verse, uh, in verse 7, they have gone out for the sake of the name. Rob. Hmm. Good question. What do you think? Yeah. Now, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, and this idea of not accepting anything from the Gentiles. Do you notice the three names, uh, these three characters in this letter. What do you notice about them? Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius. Those are Gentile names. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think probably the, the word there is, uh, is ethne, uh, the nations. The, uh, the Jews would have used that of, in the sense of the goyim, the unwashed, the masses, the, the, he the heathens, the pagans. Um, and so I think that's the way we ought to interpret it here. Whether or not Gentile is the right interpretation of that word ethne uh, is, is a matter for other discussion. But he's clearly writing to ethnic Gentiles. And he's saying, here's a good thing, that they went out for the sake of the name, uh, which I think uh, is, is Christ. No idea. Uh, I have no idea. We don't, we don't know their names. We don't know who they are. We know that they're brothers that seem to be uh, traveling uh, missionaries, not Probably not physical brothers, but brothers in Christ. Right. Right. Uh, so they went out bearing the name of Christ, uh, and they went out at their own expense, or at least at the expense of the church, uh, those who believe in Christ, and not at the expense of uh, the, the unclean, the unwashed. Now, we talked last time about um, this idea that... Uh, a huckster can make a pretty good living in the ancient world just going around being an itinerant preacher uh, and, and raising support for himself. And we read that little uh, snippet from uh, the Didache, which talks about if somebody comes to you and they're asking for money, don't, don't accept them because it's clear that they're a false prophet if they're just begging from you. Um, and I think this is to their credit, uh, that, that they are supported by the church, but they're going out. You can think of the way that Paul writes uh, to the Thessalonians. He says, you know how we were um, we were like a, a nursing mother among you, and we, we didn't accept anything from your hands, but we labored diligently among you so that we would not be a burden. I think this is to the credit of the men who have gone out, that, that they're not just going out and preaching what people like to hear so that people will bring money to them and, you know, and throw funds at their feet, uh, but rather these are, these are legitimate missionaries who want to see the name of Christ lifted up, and they're commended for the fact that they are not dependent upon the world or dependent upon unbelievers for their, uh, their monetary gain. Okay? Um, 
that brings us, I think, to, uh, to verse 8, this idea, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the church. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty strong statement. I had a, uh, I had a professor at seminary, a professor of preaching, and uh, one of his rules in Preaching 101 was that when you submitted a sermon uh, outline, uh, there were a few words that you were not allowed to have in your sermon outline. You were not allowed to use the word must, ought, or should, because he said that people don't like to be spoken to in those ways. Uh, it appears that John has, has no, such, uh, no such reservations, uh, and he's saying we ought to support uh, we ought to be, uh, as Gaius is, uh, a fellow worker. Here's, here's the way that uh, Joel Beakey speaks of this. He says, if God has reached us with the gospel and we're assured of the truth in our own hearts, then we are under a moral and a spiritual obligation to spread the truth by sharing it with others. Whether at home, on the mission field, or at work, every one of us has a part in proclaiming that message. Every believer, like Gaius, is called to be a faithful upholder of the truth. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think that's the right way to look at it, that we all have, uh, as Beaky says, a moral and a spiritual obligation? Somebody comes and they want to uh, be a missionary and you have funds, and are you morally and spiritually obligated to help them to do that? Okay. Okay. So let's say you are convinced. Let's say you are convinced that they're, they're teaching the truth. Are you morally and spiritually obligated uh, to be, as, uh, as James Boyce says, uh, allies, fellow workers with all other Christians in the great task of disseminating the truth of the gospel? Morally and spiritually obligated. Rob says yes. Bill? Yeah, so there, there has to be some wisdom and some stewardship um, that uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily, uh, what would be the, uh, the phrase that Christ used, take the bread from the mouths of the children to feed the dogs, um, you know? Um, and so there, there's got to be some stewardship there. Uh, there there's got to be uh, an understanding of, of where these funds are going to. And not everybody can meet every need. Um, and, uh, and so we want to be wise about these things, um, and we want to be discerning uh, about where these funds are going. But, yeah, Brian. Yeah. Doesn't seem like much, but when you're traveling with somebody. 
Rob? There was material support, but there was so much more. Speaking on their behalf. Yeah. Be before we switch and start to talk about uh, diatrophies for a few minutes, I think this is a real encouragement to us and, and maybe even a challenge to think about the way that we support missionaries. I think by God's grace, we do a good job uh, at Redeemer. I mean, if you just look at the numbers in our budget, how do we support missionaries? Well, we, we are quite committed uh, to mission works and to making sure that the word goes out. Um, but there are other ways to support missionaries as well that we could do better at. Um, uh, there are, uh, you know, it used to be uh, in, in uh, a bygone era in the church that you would set aside your entire Lord's Day for worship and acts of charity and mercy, and very often part of what you would do on the Lord's Day would be to write a letter of encouragement to other believers. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing that we could do for our missionaries or for other missionaries? Take some time on the Lord's Day in the afternoon when you're at home with your family, if you've got kids, you know, my kids are sleeping or whatever, uh, taking a little nap in the afternoon. What do you do? How do you, how do you celebrate the Lord's Day? Well, you can write an email. You can write an email simply to one of our missionaries, and you can get all their contact information from our missions committee to say, hey, we're praying for you, and, and we're thinking about you, and how, how can I be praying for you? How can I be uh, lifting you up to the Lord? So I think this, this moral and spiritual obligation is there, um, but when we couple it with our biblical wisdom and knowing, well, there are some, some opportunities we have. Sometimes finance is the need. That's, that's the main need if we're trying to, to pay a salary for someone who can teach and preach and make sure that their uh, family is cared for. That might be the, the major need, but there are other needs as well. Uh, spiritual burnout among our missionaries, feeling like I'm in this other place and I'm disconnected and, and who even cares that I'm here? Uh, and, and there are other ways to be, as, uh, as John is writing here, a faithful fellow worker, that we can be engaged in, in the work that these people are doing as well. Bill. It's okay if you know something about the missionary who is supporting us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an excellent plug, Bill. So the July 22nd, they'll be here. Um, so not this month, but next month. And yeah, when we have opportunities, and I, I always, I'm so encouraged when we have missionaries come. And normally, Sunday school's well attended, but, but I normally let our, our missionaries know, well, be prepared, because you'll probably have 50, 60 people in Sunday school for your presentation. And we, and we normally do, when we let everybody know there's a missionary coming. It's a, it's a great encouragement for them, for us to know uh, what's, uh, what's going on and to be uh, together with them and, and fellow workers for their work. Good. Uh, well, let's, let's switch to diatrophies. Uh, let's hope that we have some time uh, at the end. We, we've danced around this uh, a little bit already, and this is one of those situations where it is almost 
appalling when you consider the danger that one, uh, Rob, as you've said, rogue pastor. Uh, it doesn't always have to be a pastor. It could be an elder. Uh, it could be a deacon. It could be a lay person in the church. Um, but, but certainly it seems that Diotrephes is uniquely abusing his authority in this congregation. So he's able to do maybe even a little bit more damage uh, than somebody else would. Notice uh, there, there's almost this devolving nature uh, to what's happening. It begins uh, with this, uh, let's just say, he does not acknowledge our authority. I've written something to the church but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So this, our, this idea, um, those two are, are in opposition. John says, I wrote to your church. I tried to speak into the situation of your church, but Diotrephes doesn't, uh, doesn't acknowledge our authority. It seems as though uh, whatever letter John has written, he's, he's done away with and refused to read it before the church and not passed along whatever message it was and that's a big thing. Notice that um, he says uh, he does not acknowledge our authority. In the context of this letter that is written from one person to another one person, that our, that plural is sort of out of nowhere. What's the our referring to? We, thank you, Rob. Uh, but, but who's behind those pronouns? Very likely. Yeah, apostolic authority. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, and notice, um, so he's sending him, in a sense, into this lion's den where Diotrephes is wreaking all this havoc. Um, and he sends him with a commendation, uh, in a sense, saying, look, Diotrephes doesn't acknowledge our authority, but I give you my, my recommendation of Demetrius, uh, which, is, which is almost this, um, this confrontation between whose authority will hold sway in this church. Uh, he refuses to welcome brothers, and so I'll send him another brother. He refuses to acknowledge our authority, so I'll, I'll put my stamp of authority on, uh, on Demetrius. Uh, and it feels like things are coming to a head. Uh, maybe. Uh, who, who knows? Uh, but notice that this devolving nature. So they don't acknowledge our authority. Uh, he's talking wicked nonsense about us. He's not a New Englander. This is a different sense of wicked. Um, but he's talking wicked nonsense. It's slander. Uh, not only is he uh, not acknowledging the authority, but he's speaking against the authority of, of John and perhaps uh, other apostles, if there are any still alive at this point, uh, or, or simply other leaders in the church, other elders maybe at least. Uh, legitimate authorities in the church. So he's talking wicked nonsense about us, that, that plural language again. Uh, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He stops those who want to, and he even puts them out of the church. So it's going all the way in the direction of excommunicating those who want to be faithful fellow workers. In a sense, we, we get the idea that Gaius has really put his neck on the line uh, in welcoming these brothers who were strangers because he's in a situation where he could be put out of the church for that. You think about um, the blind man uh, in John chapter 9, uh, and, uh, and he and his parents and the Pharisees are beginning to question 
uh, this man and his parents, and we get this line, for they've already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And they come to him and they say, well, who was it? What do you say about this man? And he says, well, you know, who he is, I don't know, and you have to figure that out for yourselves, but one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And he's willing to stand up for what Christ has done for him. Gaius is doing the same thing. Here's Diotrephes saying, if you welcome these men, if you, if you let them in, if, if you welcome brothers uh, and these traveling missionaries, you will be put out of the church. And so what does Gaius do? Well, he welcomes them. <laughs> he says, I, you've got to judge. Uh, you know, it's an Acts chapter 4 sort of situation. You've got to judge whether we listen to man or we listen to God. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to welcome the brothers just the same. Rob? No. He's writing, them to, writing to them as, a, as an elder, excuse me, um, which is important, so it tells us that they were Presbyterian. Um, no, no, no. It does. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't reveal an entire power structure um, within the church or an authority structure. Lots of people have, have read this the way that you're suggesting, Rob, that he is a pastor. Which is, which is a change that's beginning late in the first century in the church. Rather than simply having everybody uh, being equal, sitting under the apostles, well, now we're getting to the place where the apostles are dying off. John very well may be the last living apostle late in the first century. Um, and before the apostles left, we can turn to you know, 1 Timothy, we can turn to Titus, where Paul says, I've put you here to make sure that elders are appointed in every town and every place, that there at least ought to be someone who maintains true doctrine and decorum in the church and authority in the church, and someone in the New Testament, as we see, to whom the, the members of a church, for lack of a better term, the members are supposed to submit. Peter calls himself an elder uh, when he writes. We know uh, Peter was an apostle, but he uses the same term, presbyteros, an elder, uh, when he writes in, in 1 Peter. He identifies himself as that. And so it might be that the, that the authority structure is shifting from an apostolic authority as they're dying off to an elder-led authority. Um, and we don't know if Diotrephes is an elder or not, but it seems that he holds a lot of sway in whatever congregation it was. So maybe he was the local pastor. Maybe he was the one uh, who was in charge of, uh, in, in some other um, first century, second century documents outside of scripture, talks about uh, the president uh, of, of whatever community they were gathered together. It says they would gather together, they would read the apostles, and the president would exhort them uh, uh, on some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, there doesn't seem, and the language of apostle never shows up in this letter. Um, so whether Diotrephes was claiming that he was above or over or better than John and the other apostles, we're, we're not entirely sure. We've got to take it on, uh, on face value. Now, what we can say about Diotrephes uh, is where all this has come from, and this ought to be the frightening thing. Uh, he refuses to acknowledge apostolic authority. He slanders uh, John and, and the other elders of the other apostles. Um, he puts faithful brothers and sisters out of the church for trying to be hospitable to traveling missionaries. Uh, he stops, uh, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He, he wants to stop those who welcome them. Where does all of it come from? Right in the middle of that first line there, it tells us, 
Oh, he loves to put himself first. Um, and I wish the ESV had translated this differently. Um, it uses the word like, but this actually is the word love. It's a different form of the word love, which is a big theme in John, right? We've been talking about loving one another and loving for the sake of Christ and loving the truth. And right at the beginning, he's contrasting uh, Gaius, who is walking in love and walking in truth, with Diotrephes, who loves to be first. Uh, it is the sin of pride. Uh, it is this sin that wants to have preeminence. In fact, that's the word. It's actually, it's kind of hard to translate because it's one word. It's a, it's a compound word of love and preeminence. So he, he calls him a noun. He's a preeminent lover. Uh, he loves to be in the place of preeminence. Interestingly, uh, the, the word for preeminence only shows up one other place in the New Testament. It shows up in Colossians chapter 1, 18. Speaking of Christ, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So here's what Diotrephes is doing. Uh, he loves to put himself first. He loves to be important and to be in authority, and he loves to flex his authoritative muscles in the church, but he's doing it in a way that is usurping the preeminence of Christ. Uh, and, and this is important because it reminds us of what all of our pride is. Uh, it is trying to put ourselves in the place of God. It is trying to take for ourselves... Uh, the, the recognition and the self-love that we think we deserve, and, and it, it does so at the expense of listening to the apostolic word and, and reaching out to others in charity. It's amazing how many things pride will sacrifice in order to save itself. So this is a good reminder here. We think of um, having a leader in the church who loves to be first to the extent that they're unwilling to allow Christ to be preeminent in the church. This is how John Newton responds to it. He says, I've read of many wicked popes, but the most wicked pope I've ever met is Pope Self. Um, so this idea that we want to be first and we, we want to be the head and we want to have preeminence, I think, is a, is a warning to all of us. How do we remedy that kind of pride? If Diotrephes, in a sense, is, is a little slice of all of us, and I would say that he is, uh, there's a little bit of Diotrephes and this, this sin of loving to be preeminent in each of us. How do we, how do we battle against that? Where does, where does this whole devolving thing start with Diotrephes? Because he loves to put himself first, what did he do? He refused to acknowledge the authority of John. He refused to acknowledge apostolic authority. Yeah. Um, and, and I think even further, he refuses to submit himself to God's ordained apostle. Um, and he refused to put himself under, today we don't have apostles running around, but we have their words inscripturated. This is where we have to start. If ever you have a pastor, and, and even me, if ever you have a pastor that doesn't want to listen to the authority of God's word, get rid of me. Get rid of that man who refuses to acknowledge God's word inscripturated uh, and apostolic authority. This is how, uh, you know, because we want to put ourselves first or we want to, uh, we want to be important. Um, but 
be aware in your own heart of the places where you read God's word, sort of keeping it at a distance. Well, God is speaking to my life in these sins here, and I'm okay with that, but I I won't let him all the way in, and there's this little sin that I don't want to deal with. There's this little thing that I want to, I don't want to submit this to the authority of God's word. Why? Because we want to be first. We want to have uh, the first word. We want to be preeminent. We want to uh, we want to laud ourselves rather than the authority of God. Brian? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he feels threatened. He he doesn't want anybody else to have authority because it it will threaten to take away the authority that he thinks he has. Ronnie Yeah, in our own personal lives, how do we deal with pride? Well, we, we remember forgiveness. We remember not only what Christ has done, but why he had to do it, because we're not all that we think we are. <laughs> we're not nearly as cracked up as we, we think we are. Um, you know, we're, we've got, we're the problem, and he is the solution. And so often, pride will flip those uh, two dynamics, where everything else is the problem, and I'm the solution. Uh, Diotrephes, how do you keep your, your church in check? Well, I... I keep my authority. I keep everybody else because I keep everybody else out because I'm the answer to this problem. Uh, but the gospel tells us, no, you are the problem. Uh, and and remembering that, and then you know, it's a it's a Philippians chapter two sort of thing. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ, who didn't consider himself or his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? Because we're full of sin. Uh, you know, what do we have to be prideful about? What do you have that you haven't received? We're receivers of God's grace, not earners of God's grace, not deservers of God's grace. Yeah, so it's got to come back to, to forgiveness and the gospel and recognizing what the Lord has done for us. Scott, you had your hand before we... Yeah, yeah that, that continual uh, struggle to put ourselves in our place. 
and, and not to try and usurp what does not belong to us. All right. We're a little bit beyond, but I, I think we've, we've got at least a few minutes. We don't have a few minutes, but we're going to take a few minutes. Uh, big takeaways. You've been here. You've been sitting through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John for now seven weeks. What are some things that you take away and you say, this is, this is where I've been challenged and what it means to love other believers. This is where I've been challenged and what hospitality looks like. This is where I've been uh, challenged to think about how truth interacts in my, in my daily life. And what do you think? What do you take away from, uh, from 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Dave? Okay. And that goes back to the very beginning of 1 John, walking in the truth. If anyone says that he has no sin, well, he's a liar. Uh, but what does it mean to walk in the truth? Well, it's to confess your sin, to acknowledge that, that these things are happening. That's not an excuse to continue in those things. It's not saying, well, uh, I'm envious, so let's just keep on being envious. No, no, no. It, it, the truth is, is to speak, uh, and, and to speak in a sense of repentance, uh, and, and to acknowledge and to confess our sins. Yeah. Other big takeaways? Maybe those of you who have been sitting here for seven weeks as a sponge, just soaking it all in. Ronnie. One more before we end? No? Okay, I'll pray. Let's close. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for your word. Thank you for John's epistles and the way that you inspired him, carried him along with your Holy Spirit, and he spoke to us. Uh, help us, O oh Lord, to submit ourselves to your word. Kill the pride that is within us uh, and, uh, and make us imitators of you and followers of that which is good. Uh, so that others may see and know that we know you and that we are born of you and that it may adorn the profession of the gospel in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.